Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Pro and Options, Jeff Fisher, from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early, and from Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross. Good to see you, gents. Good to see you, Chris. Gentlemen. We will break down the latest news in retail, automotive, the tech industry, and more. We will head to Singapore for perspective on the biggest international markets. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with big tech. Intel does not report earnings until mid-July, but the world's largest chip maker raised guidance for the current quarter and the full fiscal year on stronger-than-expected demand for corporate PCs. Stock was up pretty big on Friday, Jeff. I thought the PC was dead. What's going on here? (laughs) Surprise, surprise. (laughs) It is a surprise that more corporations are buying PCs than expected. Mostly they're upgrading, or we, uh, our analysis suggests, they're upgrading from Microsoft XP, which Microsoft is no longer supporting to the latest software. So the question is, how long will this upgrade cycle carry PC sales? Because IDC Research still expects PC sales as a whole to decline 6% unit volume, 6% lower this year. And that's uh, on the back of eight straight quarters of declines, two years of declines for PC sales. Andy, Intel, for the longest time, was considered to be a bellwether stock, but hearing everything that Jeff said, it seems like eh, maybe not so much anymore. Well, I tell you, the, the news that came out, I think, was quite shocking because, like the rest of us, I was like, PCs, I mean, I think that industry was just totally, you know, dying by the vine. So the news, at least, I think, is encouraging, and not just for Intel. Or it's really for the industry writ large. Like I was thinking, we follow Dolby and Stock Advisor, and for Dolby, that could be a really good sign that the PC market is actually showing some signs of life. But now, for Intel's perspective, though, the PC is is, is not going to be enough to, to to keep this thing compelling. I mean, we still need either success in mobile or or maybe Internet of Things, you know, to get these chips out there. Uh, I mean, this is this is great for now for what is it, you know, seven percent bump, but but it's it's not going to be enough to get the job done long term. Yeah, this buys Intel a bit more time as they try to work their way into mobile in a profitable way and Internet of Things. And basically, their goal is to anything that computes, they want to sell the chipset for it, the processor for it. Yeah, they got a long way to go still. Jeff, when you look at the stock, though, even with the bump on Friday, how is this stock looking on a valuation basis? You know, Chris, it remains pretty reasonably priced. It yields 3%. It trades at a multiple of around 15x earnings, so around a market average. Stop me if you've heard this before, guys. On Friday, General Motors announced a recall on 500,000 Chevy Camaros due to, wait for it, a faulty ignition switch. James, this is GM's 38th recall of this year. And last year, for all of 2013, they only had about 23. Chris, if you're at a party and you give a drunk guy the keys... And he goes out and he crashes, he hits somebody, or he drives into a pond or something. Can you really complain, especially if he's done it 37 other times? I mean, this company should should never have been bailed out. I mean, this is the U.S. government's fault. Uh, we've been waiting for GM to fix itself in a year now, and apparently this is not that year. Uh, GM is now literally recalling 10% of all cars uh, on U.S. roads. I mean, and, and maybe there's some credit to be given for, for them taking less than 11 years to announce this particular recall, but that's 
vastly overridden by by the fact that this is another ignition switch problem, and you think somebody would have actually caught on uh, to the fact that this might not be their specialty. Yeah, I mean, there are some people who are looking at this and saying, look, they're they're being cautious, they're being safe, they're learning from their mistakes, and yet, when I look at the aggregate numbers, 38th recall so far in 2014, totaling somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 million cars. Uh, I don't know. This yeah, this is pathetic. This GM, years ago, GM should have been allowed to fail. The money that was put towards resuscitating GM should have been given as some kind of a payout to, to whoever. The, the parts could have been sold to, to a Japanese or Korean automaker or European automaker, someone who would have known what they were doing and, and run oh. this company competently. <laughs> uh, but instead, we kept this thing alive, and, and now, now we pay the price, right? You disagree, Jeff? Ouch. Well, you, you have to wonder if the pendulum has just swung to the other side. They weren't doing recalls when they should have, and now they realize, holy cow, any little thing, we better recall it and get it fixed. But weren't these Camaros made like as recently as this year? That are being recalled. Yeah, these are. This Camaros is not a legacy problem. This is a, a recent problem too. Who's still buying Camaros? At least five hundred thousand people. <laughs> Priceline is buying Open Table, the online restaurant reservations company, for two point six billion. Andy, that's a premium of forty six percent for Open Table. First and foremost, are they worth it? Uh, that's a really good question, Chris, because um, it really depends on how Priceline is going to integrate the uh, open table, both the platform and also the business. Um, Priceline's been been shopping around for these little acquisitions. They bought Kayak. They still haven't. I don't think in shareholders uh, of which I am one. I'm actually one of Open Table as well too. They haven't seen the full benefit of the Kayak uh, acquisition to integrate that platform. So they're going to try to do the same thing with Open Table. So I think it could be a very nice tuck-in acquisition. But the big picture for for Priceline, it's actually a very small part of their overall market capitalization. I was so. going to say they can absolutely afford yeah. this acquisition, but oh, yeah. but I think people were. Surprised surprised by how much they were willing to pay. And we even saw on Friday shares of Yelp up 10 15% just because people are now looking at Yelp and thinking, well, maybe they're next. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the price is, is far higher than the 52-week high, which usually that's kind of the guidance of acquisitions. And Rich, on an, on an EBITDA level and a, and a, and a PE level for, for the growth prospects of what you would traditionally think of a company like this. But OpenTable has a lot going for it, even though the price is rather um, was higher than the 52-week high and higher than what I would have thought Priceline would have paid for. But what's confusing to me, and I, I don't follow these companies, but I just read an article or two about this. And they said that, that Priceline typically does not make much of an effort to actually integrate these companies. You know, it lets them operate independently, which seems strange. Uh, uh, why would they pay such a high price if they're not going to try to integrate and, and get, you know, some kind of synergy? Is, are they collecting it like like an old lady hoarding cats? I mean, wh- what are they doing? <laughs> well, it's also the tech- I think it's customers and technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could just think how maybe they would think about Open Table because so much of Priceline's business is tied to the Booking.com. Open Table has um, all this access into new, into these restaurants. Maybe there's some bed and breakfast kind of um, uh, synergies there too. Maybe it's the technology to use the actual Open plat- Open Table platform they want to actually use that in some of their booking.com business so they may still run it as a separate unit unit but they may be able to integrate some of, some of the systems and priceline is more inter- open open table is pr- pretty much domestic and priceline is actually very international well too. yeah so maybe I mean, there's a it's, expansion. it's yeah they paid more than eighty thousand dollars per restaurant open table has thirty one thousand restaurants um so uh the the price point like i said before does seem a little bit rich just on the surface but i like priceline strategy for for making these little acquisitions here's the thing chris though i would think that Priceline actually is going to make a much larger acquisition over the next year or so. You know, we've talked about how hot the IPO market has been for the last 18 months, but it really seems like the 
M&A activity is picking up to the point where I'm wondering if now, when investors are thinking about buying a stock, James, should they also be thinking about if that company is a potential takeout candidate, if that alone is a good thesis for buying a stock? Uh, generally, no, because you know, a t- takeout is very, very hard to predict, and, and then they happen, and then they, and they, they, they can be announced, and they can be canceled. It's a, tough, it's a tough thing. It's something to take. It, it's better for a bad stock. For a good stock, a good company, this is actually something most investors probably don't think about in the right way, I would say. For a really good company you, that you think is going to be a long-term winner, you actually don't want it to be bought out because th- you get a small premium, and that's it's your whole gain, right? But for a, for a lousy company, you actually want that. So it depends on your type of company. The other thing about OpenTable, it's a huge mobile platform. Priceline still is not outside of their kayak. It's really not a huge mobile platform play yet. OpenTable certainly is. So it's a play further in the mobile growth. You're really into this, man. You're, you're yeah. thinking yeah, about well, it. I own yeah. both these we're stocks. We're talking about else. You're still thinking about OpenTable. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's having yeah. a good week. Yeah, that's I like it. He's on a roll. Well, I think the price really tells us OpenTable was not eager to sell. Yeah. I think they really held out because they're a young company. They they're think the they're older. They think yep. they're great. Yeah. Yep. Shares of Twitter up 3.5% on Thursday on the news that Chief Operating Officer Ali Rogani was resigning effective immediately. He will remain with Twitter as a strategic advisor to CEO Dick Costello. Help me out here, Jeff. This is a guy, mm-hmm. two months ago, the Wall Street Journal had a story about him calling him Mr. Fix-It. And now he's effectively out the door. Out the door. His fixes didn't work. And really, that's the story here. The user base growth at Twitter is close to stalling. It only grew 5% last quarter, quarter over quarter. For a young company that just went public, you need faster growth than that. Really, at least double digits. So uh, Twitter now has 255 million users, but only about 20% or so visit the site once a month. Facebook is closer to 75%. So there's an engagement problem, too. So CEO Dick Costello had to shake things up, and one of his moves was getting rid of COO uh, and some other top executives. He's reorganizing the business, having more people report directly to him, and I think he's going to really try to oversee boosting growth at Twitter because they need it. Yeah, Andy, it's worth noting that uh, they're not hiring a new chief operating officer. They've effectively eliminated the yeah. position. And I'm wondering if chief operating officers are not uh, something that every company needs. Well, not to make a, a huge general statement, but chief operating officers probably don't come very cheaply either. So as an as a opportunity to kind of um, continue to think about your margins and keep, about, keep your um, personnel costs low, which for a tech company, for a tech consumer company, personnel costs are such a high part of your overall cost structure, a way to keep it, keep it on, the, on the downside, and also for the CEO to consolidate power. Coming up, we've got some retail earnings news, and amazingly enough, not all of it is terrible. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Jeff Fisher, James Early, and Andy Cross. Lululemon Athletica down more than 15% this week. James, first quarter profits look pretty good, but they lowered guidance for the full fiscal year. CEO calls this, quote, a transitional year. I'm assuming that 
is not transitional in a good way. Yeah, yeah pretty soon they're going to have to change their name to just Lemon. I mean, <laughs> this was a, a fast-growing company. It still is a fast-growing company, but, but there's a lot of competition now. And what's ironic is that Levi's recently complained that their jeans had poor sales because people were buying yoga pants instead, but apparently they're not buying yoga pants from Lululemon. Uh, and that, that's, the, that's the issue. This company was started as a kind of a fad, a craze, and, and it's a one-trick pony. Uh, I mean, they're trying to be a two- or three- or four-trick pony, but it's still hard. Uh, and, and now kind of the, you know, those birds are coming back to roost, so to speak. Uh, if there is a silver lining, it might be that they are buying back their stock about half a billion dollars worth, and they're doing it at a pretty good time. Sure, shares are down 36% this Stock's year, at a three-year low, so I'm wondering if that alone gets you interested in the stock. No. Um, you know, there's still a lot of board infighting. You know, the CEO is, is, is a very colorful, colorful character. He thought that the, the, uh, the issue with the, the translucency in the, in the previous pants was the fault of overweight customers trying to put them on. Uh, and he, he said a lot, he, he votes, he's voted against the whole board. He owns 27% of the company, I think. So I think there's just too much infighting. There's too much of a fad risk for me to, to get interested. Shares of Radio Shack down 20% this week after its first quarter loss was bigger than Wall Street was expecting. I'm not even sure how that's possible, Andy. And uh, <laughs> uh, moreover, how is this company still standing? Yeah, well, uh, full disclosure, we recommended this in Hidden Gems and, and still hold it. We put it on in the penalty box a few months ago, just given the, the continued worsening performance of their store base trying to close stores. Now the big risk is that they won't be able to fund the business and they won't be able to pay the debt. And they'll actually, there's more than, than likely chance, more than, you know, maybe a 50% chance that they actually will have to file for bankruptcy. So um, they just have the mobility curve has not worked out for them. The store base has is just too large. They need to continue to shrink that, and they just may be running out of time, Chris. Yeah. One of the stories was how they were looking to raise more money. The, the CEO was trying to put on a brave face and say, look, we're, we're in turnaround mode, but we're going to need money to fund that. But I just wonder, who's going to lend them money? Yeah. At any rate that is not considered anything but prohibitive. Yeah, and that's and that's the trick. I mean, a few years ago, this company's interest cover, when you look at their their profits versus the interest expense, was somewhere in the eight to nine times. Now they're not even operating profit, running off operating profits. So the fact that that's going to turn around at any reasonable time and someone's going to loan them money, that's the real risk, and that's why investors have sold the stock off so significantly. My, my dad shocked me yesterday. He he has been. Uh, playing with my son and, and doing different experiments. And he actually came back. He said he went to Radio Shack and found some electrical circuitry toy kit. And that's the kind of thing you could only probably buy at a Radio Shack. So well, and that's, that's uh, one out of you know, three customers. Or Amazon. Quarter, quarter for them, yeah. <laughs> that's, very, that's very true for those who want, who want to like kind of like find what they want. But that's just a, a, a shrinking part of the sales yeah. base now. I don't want to get too personal, but did everything go okay with the electrical circuitry? Actually, it did. It to a lot of shaking, which which we were not certain it would, but it but actually did. So good job for the product. Restoration Hardware up 15% this week after a strong first quarter, and they raised guidance for the full fiscal year. It's looking good, Jeff. Shares at an all-time high this week. It's looking good, and it's a fun story, fun company to watch, because in the midst of the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, they... They had a whole kind of reorganization plan that they're now laying out and then put into place, which includes closing about 30% of stores, making their remaining stores showcase destinations, and selling. They sell nearly half of their revenue comes from comes online or through what they now call their source books. 
And have any of you received a... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, did did you? Did yeah. it put a hole Bro- through your floor? I was going to you- say, it broke my back trying to pick it up. So in the- <laughs> Wait, what is a, the what is a source book? Yeah, just yeah, arrived source at, last catalog. week or so at our house. Yeah, same it's, with it's, us. I think 16-pound, 18-pound. It, it's, yeah. it's 13 catalogs, though. They don't want to call them that. They call them resource books or source books. Okay, but they're catalogs. All in one bundle, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they're only sending them once a year. This is yeah. once a year you get it, and they say that's much more ecologically friendly and then you have them all year for when you want new lighting or to new furniture each one is categorized so it's interesting concept and and it's kind of like reminds me of the sears catalog you get everything at once uh and we know once how well year. that worked out for yeah. sears yeah. And it worked Penny, well right? for a yeah. long time and then it didn't so we'll see how well this works well it's also it's worked out well for williams sonoma which plays in the same space as restoration hardware does and this is the difference between a company like restoration hardware or Williams-Sonoma, they can use their stores as showcases to go uh, buy the product online. You can't do that at Radio Shack. That's that's a big difference, and that's the value of having something like Williams-Sonoma or Restoration Hardware compared to something like that. Does Restoration Hardware still sell all those junky, like, pseudo-1950s trinkets, you know, the fake x-ray glasses or, or you know I think they, they're you know, streamlined you know, they've a little mo- bit yeah. <laughs> I think they've moved on from that from that is not always their brand now yep and but right, that was only 70% of, of their brand of the, store. Okay. Yeah. the yeah. store though I agree is important because a lot of what they sell is furniture and I am very reluctant to buy a chair without trying it first right. uh, a fun thing I, I learned recently too is that they plan to provide espresso drinks and food and child care in their stores as well so they're really what going all child out. care yeah. look like at a restoration I know, hardware. Daycare. Hey, can I daycare? then go like exactly. out for the day? Is restoration <laughs> hardware your, you your come look, to work. Jeff? Just out of curiosity, in terms of your interior design taste, are you kind of a restoration hardware kind of guy or more like a modern guy? We we live in a house built in 1934, so gotcha. we try to match you know that time period. So kind of curious. Mix, yeah. Finally, guys, the World Cup has begun, uh, but with literally billions of people expected to tune in, what is it going to mean for office productivity? According to one survey in the Middle East, where games will be aired between 7 p.m. and 4 a.m., nearly 90% of professionals said they plan to watch at least some of the games. A third of them plan to just get less sleep. 10% said they will go into work late uh, in order to catch up on their sleep. Another 10% said that they would take annual leave. Uh, let's bring in our man Steve Broida from the other side of the glass. <laughs> Steve, you're a big soccer fan. How are you going to maintain your productivity during the World Cup? Well, since I don't follow hockey, I think it should be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not asking you to pick a winner, Steve, but can you at least give me two teams you think are good candidates to meet up in the finals? Uh, Canada. And uh, Angola. <laughs> Keep those emails coming, radio at fool.com, to show your support for our man Steve Broido. Thanks, guys. Up next, we're going to head to Singapore to check in with our man David Quo. Don't go anywhere. I sat back down with a smiling face while she went down to the powder place with my green back, green back dollar bill. Just a little piece of paper coated with chlorophyll. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. China is the world's second largest economy, and it is an economy that is slowing down. Here to help us make sense of what's happening in China and other international markets is David Kuo. He is a regular financial commentator for the BBC, and he is the director of Motley Fool Singapore, which is where he joins me from. David, always good to talk to you. Thanks for being here. And you, Chris. Oh, by the way, just one small correction. According to some people, China has already overtaken America as the largest economy in the world. 
This is through some kind of um, jiggery pokery. I think they call purchasing power parity. And on that basis, they reckon that uh, China has already uh, overtaken America. But I accept your point. Yes, China <laughs> is the second largest, according to most traditional me- measures. Yes. I'm getting that information from the BBC. So that's what we're going with for now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, you can always trust the BBC. Yes. Always, particularly when you're on it. Uh, it, it You look at the latest quarter for China's economy, it grew almost 7.5% in the first quarter of 2014. Most people, I think, would look at that and and happily take that kind of growth. And yet, it is slowing down. And now we see the central bank in China starting to take some steps to boost some growth. From where you sit in Singapore, what stands out to you when you look at China's economy right now? Okay, you know, that's a wonderful question, Chris. And I think we have to try and understand what is going on in China. Um, I think in the past, China was perceived as uh, being a developing economy. Some people say it is still a developing economy. But what China really wants is growth uh, of quality rather than just simply growth for the sake of growth's sake. I mean, anyone can get a country to grow. All you need to do is they get the government to throw lots of money into the country and and then building its infrastructure, and you will get some kind of growth. But what China wants is uh, good growth, good quality growth, sustainable growth. So what it's trying to do is to uh, try and and move its economy to be more like uh, the economies of the West, like America, like Europe. Uh, What it really wants to do is to say, can we get our consumers to drive the the economy rather than the government continuing uh, to keep on pumping money in? So that is going to be a very painful process because for the last 20 years, it's been the government that's had the the upper hand. The government is saying, uh, the government has said, we will build hospitals, we will build airports, we will build towns, we will build roads, we will build railways. But there comes a point, you know, when you can't really build anymore because you've got all the airports and all the hospitals that you have. And so what China is trying to do now is to say, uh, the government has done its part. Now it's time for the consumers. And we know that Chinese consumers have been saving voraciously, you know, o- o- over the years. They have plenty of savings stashed away. And I think the government really wants uh, the Chinese consumers to start spending some of that money so they, could, that they can have uh, quality growth rather than just uh, government-inspired growth. They're also looking for the banks to start lending even more money. And the latest move from the central bank in China is to, uh, among other things, cut the requirements in terms of the amount of cash that banks need to keep in reserve. Uh, they're doing this for about two-thirds of the bank. Is it, How much concern is there, if any, that China may be moving to what we like to refer to here in America as free money forever? None whatsoever, Chris, and I'll tell you why. Because, I mean, any economy has four levers that that it can pull. The first lever, as I mentioned earlier on, was consumer spending. In other words, getting consumers to spend their money, and then that will help the economy grow. The second one is what we call uh, private sector spending. And this is when factories, uh, businesses start to spend uh, capital expenditure, and that will get an economy to grow. The third one is government spending, and that is something that China has been doing for the last 20 years, and it wants to stop doing that. And the fourth one is uh, net exports. In other words, if a, com- if a country can uh, produce plenty of goods and export it, then that will also drive economic growth. Now, those are the four levers that China can pull at any one time. 
And we have to remember that China is still a command economy. In other words, the government controls everything. And the government can pull on any of those four levers that it wants to in order to get the economy to grow. Now, earlier on, we talked about them trying to encourage the consumers to spend money. But unfortunately, the consumers aren't really at that sophisticated stage yet where they they will be able to uh, spend money and drive the economy. So therefore, we come to the second lever, which is the private sector spending. And again, you know, we, we, we're talking about companies spending money. But in order to do that, they must have access to uh, finance, access to capital. So this is really what the government is trying to encourage, saying to the banks, you don't really have to keep that much cash. Uh, and what you should really be doing is to lend out that cash to uh, companies who want to borrow the money in order to uh, spend it on capital expenditure. And if it can do this successfully, that's the second lever that it, that it can pull. So just keep, keep on bearing in mind that there are four levers that China can pull. That first one is consumer spending, the second one is private sector spending, the third one is government spending, and the fourth one is net exports. And unlike many other countries around the world, China has got the ability to pull on those four levers. Some of the countries around the world would like to pull on those four levers, but for instance, government spending is a no-no because the government has run out of cash. But China, as you well know, can print as much cash as it wants to because uh, it is a law unto itself. So therefore, it can keep on uh, producing this cash and get the economy to grow. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with David Kuo, heads up operations at Motley Fool Singapore. Let's move to another country, and that's India, which now has a new leader uh, in the wake of the recent election, uh, Narendra Modi. And part of his platform was economic reform. How should investors feel about uh, India's new leader? Uh, very positively, I think, you know, simply because of the mandate that he's been given by the people of India itself. I mean, he has an overall majority, and people in India are looking up to him and saying, we need, uh, we need to change. We need to compete with China. I mean, at one time, both India and China were both growing at around the same kind of uh, rate, around about sort of 8, 9, 10% a year. And then suddenly, uh, growth in India fell off a cliff. Whereas in, in China, it hasn't exactly fallen off the cliff, but it's come, come down a few percentage points. But as far as India is concerned, it is still uh, in the process of trying to restructure itself. And I think, you know, restructuring is really right at the top of uh, Narendra Modi's uh, agenda at the moment. What he's saying is that we, we need some structural reforms here. We have to remember that um, about one in four people in India uh, are between the ages of 10 and 24. Now, just, just bear this number in mind. I mean, one quarter of the people there are young people between the ages of 10 and 24. At the same time, one in 10 people between the ages of 20 and 24 are unemployed. Now, this is not good. Uh, we know that youth unemployment is pretty big all over the world. But in the case of India, because it's got such a large, large population of young people, and one in 10 of these young people are not employed, uh, it, it, it is... It, it is very problematic, problematic for India. So what Narendra Modi has to do is to try and uh, structure that economy in such a way that it will get unemployment down, uh, bring down inflation at the same time, and then, you know, I think we would be able to see India uh, growing at the same rate as China. And it really needs to, because otherwise there are going to be big social problems there. When you look at the return of emerging markets, just the basic emerging markets index over the last few years, it's really been terrible. And there was a good stretch of time, David, when not only were emerging markets a really great place to invest, but you could make uh, 
investments in ETFs in China, in India, you know, some of the countries that we're talking about here. But lately, emerging markets have been really bad investments. When you look around the world, do you find yourself gravitating as an investor towards any particular market? And if so, which ones and why? Well, I, I still like the emerging market story simply because uh, there is plenty of growth there. I mean, if you have a look at the emerging markets here in uh, Southeast Asia, I mean, we've got the Philippines, we've got Indonesia, we've got Malaysia. Singapore is no longer classified as an emerging market. We are now a developed market. But then you have China. So you have plenty of opportunities within the emerging markets. But just looking at an economy growing is uh, not a good reason to uh, invest in an exchange-traded fund. It is one way to get some kind of exposure to uh, these emerging markets. But I would much prefer to uh, look at companies, specific companies, and say which are the ones that are able to um, take advantage of the growth in that economy. I mean, I'll give you one example. I mean, here in Singapore, we have a company called Jardine Cycle and Carriage. And uh, this company, first of all, started off selling automobiles. But now it actually is one of the biggest investors in uh, Indonesia, particularly in the automotive uh, industry in Indonesia and also in palm oil production and also coal mines. It does lots of things, even uh, all the way up to uh, providing finance for people to buy cars. Now, if you look at this company, it is um, uh, here in Singapore, but it invests in Indonesia. And I just see this as being, you know, one way in which people can take advantage of uh, developed or developing economies, not by going in directly, but looking at a tangential way in which they can invest in those. And uh, simply because in Singapore, we have a much higher uh, corporate governance, there is more transparency, the markets are more accessible, the information is more freely available. And I think, you know, that is a better way of investing in emerging markets rather than just going in uh, and buying an exchange traded fund. One country we haven't yet talked about is Japan. Uh, and again, another example of a country that for a long time was the epitome of, of growth and economic success and has really stagnated over the last decade or so. Um, what's your take on Japan's economy right now and whether it is a place investors should be looking or should be avoiding? Well, the thing about Japan is it's been a bit of a serial disappointer. Um, I, I was invested in, in Japan many years ago, uh, and uh, I hadn't made a great deal of money out of Japan. But now uh, it is becoming, well, it is starting to come good again. And this is simply because of um, uh, abonomics. I mean, the prime minister in Japan understands also, you know, like many other countries in, in, in Asia, that it has structural problems. And what it's saying to, to uh, the Japanese uh, corporations is that you now need to start investing money. I mean, recently we saw some GDP figures, some economic figures from, from Japan, and people weren't particularly positive about that. And then suddenly when the figures came out, uh, people's jaws began to drop. People said, my goodness, we hadn't realized that Japan had this capability of growing. And the reason for that is because Japanese corporations have a mountain of cash, and they're just sitting, but well, they have been sitting on that cash, not spending it. And what uh, Shinzo Abe, the prime minister, is saying to these com uh, companies is, you have to spend this cash. I think there is close on to two trillion U.S. dollars sitting on corporate balance sheets in Japan. I mean, add that onto then uh, another 1.2 trillion U.S. dollars 
worth of cash that the government pension fund is sitting on, and you have, you know, uh, quite an armory of uh, available funds for Japanese uh, companies and Japanese pension funds to drive that economy forward. I mean, in the past, I mean, Japan had deflation. In other words, uh, people never really went out and bought things because they knew it was going to be cheaper tomorrow rather than today. So if you want to renew your TV set, why would you want to do it today when tomorrow is going to be cheaper? But I think, you know, Shinzo Abe with his three arrows, he's trying to instill some kind of inflation in Japan so that people's mentality will change. And then the Japanese consumers, and I, and I love Japanese consumers, I know they like to spend money, uh, and they will spend money. And once they start, start spending that money, Japan's economy will grow. So if we go back right to the very top, where we were talking about those four levers, again, Japan understands that there are four levers that it needs to, to pull. The first one is to get the consumers to spend money. The second one is to get the private sector to spend money. The government is also spending money. And if the Japanese yen can fall low enough, it will have net exports. So it's ticking all four boxes there. So there is no reason why we shouldn't be excited about um, the prospects for Japan in the future. Coming up, more with David Kuo. This is Motley Fool Money. Cash, That's what I need. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, talking with David Kuo from Motley Fool Singapore. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with David Kuo, heading up Motley Fool Singapore. I can't let you go without a question or two about the World Cup, because I know you're a fan. Do we have to? Do we have to talk about the World Cup? <laughs> yeah, I know you're a fan, but I also know you are a former bookmaker. So uh, first and foremost, um, who should I be betting on in the World Cup? And is there, if maybe not a favorite out there, is there an interesting long shot where I could get some good odds? Okay, right. The favorite is bound to be Brazil because, I mean, they are playing at home. But uh, I like the long shots because I, I do believe, you know, as far as the World Cup is concerned, it is a lottery because anything can happen. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, well, one of the reasons why I, I was so disparaging right in the very beginning about the World Cup is that whilst it might be okay for you over in the United States and for those people in Europe, it isn't that sort of convenient for us to watch the football games over here. It comes on at 4 o'clock in the morning, Chris. I mean, can you imagine either staying up until 4 o'clock in the morning or setting your alarm for 4 o'clock in the morning? just to watch a football game. So uh, I will be watching the reruns on television when, when, when I wake up. But as far as my favorite team is concerned, I think the dark horse is Belgium. I really do like the Belgium team. I hope they don't turn out to be another Netherlands team, uh, which promises a lot but never quite delivers. I think Belgium really could surprise a lot of people in this World Cup. Every year in the United States when the Super Bowl is held, obviously you can bet on either team, but there are also always a lot of interesting prop bets that you can make. Which team will score first? Which team will kick the first field goal? That sort of thing. Does that sort of thing go on with the World Cup as well? You bet it does. I mean, there are all kinds of side bets that, that, that people can make. For instance, how many corners there are going to be in a game, which is the first player in a match to be sent off, who is going to, how many yellow cards there are going to be between each team. There are lots of uh, side bets that people can make. But, you know, the thing about bookies is that uh, they love to have these side bets because they know that uh, the more you bet, the more they win. Uh, I, I remember an old friend of mine in, uh, in, in, in the U.K. once said to me, uh, if you ever had to invest in any industry, invest in the bookmakers. Because if you go into a bookies in London or anywhere in the U.K., you will find that there are three windows for you to pay in, 
one that pays out. Now, with odds <laughs> like that, you know, I, I, I think bookies are a pretty good bet, don't you? Absolutely, especially when you put it that way. If you want insights into what is happening in Singapore's stock market, you can get David Quo's free investing newsletter, Take Stock. You can sign up for it by going to our website in Singapore, which is just fool.sg. That's the website for Motley Fool Singapore, fool.sg. And you can sign up for the free newsletter, Take Stock. David, always good to talk with you, my friend. Enjoy the World Cup. I will do. And you, Chris. I I never managed to ask you, whose team are you supporting in the World Cup? Is it the U.S. of A? Uh, I will be supporting the U.S. of A. And part of the reason is because I know that will not be a large commitment of my time, because there is every (laughs) expectation that they will not make it out of the group round. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I'm glad that uh, they're, they're grateful for your uh, uh, small support, yes, even if it's only in the early stages. All right. I have to go make a bet on Belgium. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Thanks, David. All right. Joining me in studio once again, Jeff Fisher, James Early, and Andy Cross. Guys, just a couple minutes to get to the stocks on our radar. Andy Cross, you're up first. What are you looking at? Coach has an analyst day next week, Chris, and so we need to see some really good, (laughs) exciting news coming from Coach when it comes to the North American business and their brand. They're really trying to turn things around. James and I both follow this stock. Um, It's in in both of our services. So I think it's really important that they make this uh, message to the analyst uh, investors. They don't lower any of the guidance, and they talk about what they can do to grow the business in North America again. And the ticker symbol? C-O-H. James Early, what are you looking at? Uh, Critch, Buckle, uh, ticker BKE, is a, is a stock on my income investor scorecard. This is a Midwestern U.S. jeans retailer that made a lot of money when jeans were popular and people had a lot, a lot of money from fracking uh, in the area. But now with all the bad news about jeans, with the bad news about yoga pants, I'm, I'm wondering about how, how viable this is long-term. It's a very well-run company, no question about that, but they are a little bit constant, or very concentrated in genes. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious about my own estimates on this one. Jeff Fisher, the market is the gift that keeps giving, right? And so Panera Bread is worth coming back to to consider. Uh, the ticker is PNRA. Now we all, many of us know Panera, uh, but they're going through a, kind of a reorg themselves, if you will. They're trying to make it more efficient for customers to go through the food process, and they're also trying to develop their online. Uh, sales and catering and uh, pickup. So they're they're looking at all these different ways to grow their revenue per store. The stock is as inexpensive on valuation multiples as it has been in years. And the business cycles through periods of investment, like now, and then earnings growth follows. That's its history, and I think the future looks better. Steve, Coach, Buckle, Panera Bread, you got a favorite among those three? I think Panera seems the most interesting. All right. (laughs) My weekend is complete now. (laughs) All right. Jeff Fisher, James Early, Andy Cross, guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's show. The show is mixed by Gail Año Nuevo. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.